0: It's a real joy to be with you folks once again this evening. I was telling Graham we had a very fine, exceptionally good service in Kirk and Tillock Baptist Church this morning, at least I felt that anyway. Um, And uh, I thought for a minute I'd lost half my notes. (laughs) Now don't cheer, please. You're very patient, you're very, very brave to come back after me keeping you along last uh, Sunday evening. <laughs> Do you realise what we were just singing just now? We were asking God to break us? Mm. I always feel a real need of the Holy Spirit's help when I come to preach, but I feel that even more so this evening, because you see the doctrine, the teaching on the Holy Spirit divides the Evangelical Church in two and there's still quite a bit of tension between these two groups remember the word Evangelical comes from the Greek word for Gospel and Evangelical means we embrace the Gospel, we believe the Bible it is the Word of God and on that we stand. Why is the other section of the church called charismatic? Well, that's another Greek word. Charismata is the plural of the word for grace gift or grace gifts. Gifts of the Spirit are called charismata, grace gifts from God. And as I mentioned last week, uh, the Holy Spirit came in fresh power to some Christians in America a long time ago, a hundred years ago, and out of that has grown the Pentecostal Church. And then about 50 years ago, there was a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit all over the world, really. And that affected denominations which, in the past, would have had not any great emphasis at all on the Spirit of God. It's very sad that. Evangelical Christians who are not charismatic and those who are charismatic tend to avoid each other to some extent. Why is it sad? Because each group needs the other. You see, the Evangelical Church is very strong on the Word of God. Hallelujah! The charismatic Church is very strong on the Holy Spirit. But the charismatic Church has sometimes been pretty shaky on the Word of God. Oh, we've got the Spirit now, we don't need the Word so much. Oh, oh, beware! On the other hand, the Evangelical Church, which would not claim to be charismatic or want to be called charismatic, can be a bit heavy on the Word and almost to the point of ignoring, dare we say it, the Holy Spirit. I think I've told you already that 40 years ago, I had an experience of the Spirit which is properly labelled being baptised in the Spirit. Now it's very interesting that In John's Gospel, and all the three Gospels before that, all of these four Gospels say one of the key things that John the Baptist said about Jesus. Because John the Baptist said, describing Jesus as one greater than himself who would come later, He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And the same John also said about our Lord Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, And that's quoted only by John in no other gospel. So we have one statement in scripture concerning the wonderful sacrifice of Jesus to take away our sins, without which we wouldn't be here tonight. We have four statements in scripture in all the gospels saying the same Jesus wants to and will baptize people in the Holy Spirit. I know how sharp the division can be between those Evangelicals who are suspicious of any charismatic talk and those who are happy to go down that road. How do I know that? Because before I was baptised in the Spirit there was a church where I was regularly invited to preach and the minute they got word of the fact that I had been baptised in the Spirit the door of that church closed and it has remained closed for 40 years. Yes, lovely people lovely godly Christians but any idea of being immersed in the Holy Spirit hmm that's a bit weird nobody told us about that before and some Christians sadly actually believe without any good reason for doing so that the gifts of the Spirit that we find described in 1 Corinthians 12 were actually withdrawn about the end of the first century when the Bible was completed that is not true absolutely not not true. Another reason why the two sections of the Christian church which are evangelical meet each other is illustrated by the fact that 30 years ago in England the Bible Society carried out a survey and from that survey of evangelical churches both charismatic and non-charismatic they discovered that non-charismatic evangelical churches were growing at an average rate of about 5% per annum. But charismatic churches were growing at a rate of about 25% per annum. Slight <coughs> difference. Well, I have very conscious this evening that I'm tackling a subject which is regarded, understandably, by some Christians as being seriously controversial. And some preachers would prefer not to tackle it at all. But you see, it's all about our having or not having what I could call the maximum experience possible for a saved human being of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> and I believe, and I think in your mind you believe too, that God wants us to have His maximum blessing, not minimum, not minimal, but maximum. And I found that my ministry was not diminished. It was greatly enlarged, enhanced. When I was baptised in the Holy Spirit, of course, I had to revise my theology. I had to stop saying some of the things I'd been saying and start saying some of the things I hadn't been saying. And we're going down that road this evening. What I want us to think about this evening is the process, and I'm choosing this word carefully, the process of our conversion. When you think of how and when you became a Christian, do you think of what happened to you as a crisis or as a process? Well, for most people there is certainly a crisis point. Perhaps the only exception to that is some Christians honestly say, I cannot remember the time. When I did not trust the Lord Jesus and love him as my Saviour and Lord and he was part of my life. That's people who were brought up in a Christian home and they fell in love with Jesus when they were still children. That happens and it's wonderful. Wonderful. But for most people, becoming a Christian is something of a crisis. It is a major change after all. But what we must understand is this. that That crisis does not occur in isolation. That crisis occurs within a process, and that process can sometimes last an amazingly long time. From the time we are first made aware of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the time when we finally surrender fully to him. Because until we surrender fully to him, we are not quite fully converted in the New Testament sense. Those of you who are nurses or medics will understand that, uh, <laughs> I'm speaking not from experience, you know, but I understand that if a baby has a bad birth, and, 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 and a birthing experience that is short of being ideal, if there have been problems at the time of the baby's birth, it can, in some situations, have an adverse effect on that child as he or she grows up, and can affect them perhaps for the remainder of their life. Now I suggest exactly the same is true when it comes to being born again of God's Spirit and becoming a real, live Christian. A quality birth experience will likely lead to a quality experience of Christian life. A kind of inferior birthing experience can result in a Christian being somewhat handicapped through the life that follows, maybe not seriously handicapped but to some extent hindered from developing fully and reasonably quickly in the Christian life. One Bible teacher puts it this way to become from an unbeliever unsaved, non-Christian to being a fully fledged Christian in the New Testament sense of that word and that expression There are four doors we need to go through. Now don't scratch your head, you're thinking without scratching your head. Four doors, Sandy? wonder what they are. Well, let's take them one by one. So when we come to look at the Gospels and the Book of Acts, we discover that the first word that hits us in a sense in relation to leaving our non-Christian life behind and bringing a, a new person into our life, the Lord Jesus Christ, and beginning to live that Christian life, the first word with which Scripture hits us is repent. Oh, repent literally means a change of mind. That's what the Greek word means. Repentance is a change of mind. But when you change your mind, what happens next? You change direction. You get up in the morning thinking, I know what I'll do today, I'll go to St. Andrews. And then you have a change of mind, no I won't, I'll go to Oban. And you end up in Oban, not St. Andrews. Because your change of mind led to a change of direction. And that's what's happening to us at the beginning of our Christian life. God is speaking into our life and leading us to change our mind about him, about his son, about his spirit, about our sins, and so on. And that change of mind leads on to a change of direction. So the first command is to repent. And we're called to repent towards God. Sin is committed against God. Oh yes, we sin against each other also, unfortunately. But the serious, serious sin is the sin we commit against God crime is different crime is committed against the state, not against God the state can't forgive but sin is committed against God and God longs to forgive quite different now we know that the repentance was commanded by John the Baptist the same man you see who declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world also called his hearers to repentance. We can begin in, in Matthew chapter 3, and it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And if we turn the page in our Bible, I have to turn it in mine anyway, to get to Matthew chapter 4, what do we find? We find in Matthew chapter 4, that Jesus is beginning his preaching ministry with exactly the same words from that time on Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near now remember the Jews didn't like using God's name so rather than say the kingdom of God they would say the kingdom of heaven that's God's place, kingdom of heaven And the Matthew's Gospel was written particularly for Jewish readers. So Matthew doesn't quote Jesus as saying the kingdom of God. Perhaps he did. But he puts it in as kingdom of heaven. Same difference. The point is, in each case, the concept is that the kingly power of God is breaking through into this situation. How do you react to it? You react by repenting. The kingly power of God gets our attention people dismiss God as if he was not there or not alive he is so much alive and so active throughout the earth and he's breaking the situations all over the place as we meet here this evening the command to repent was issued by John the Baptist issued by the Lord Jesus and issued by the Apostle Paul you remember in Acts 17 he's in Corinth and he's appalled to see in Corinth masses and masses of idols And he even finds an idol, a statue, to the unknown God, or an unknown God. Just in case they forgot to identify one of the gods, we better put one in to anonymous God, an unknown God. And in that city of Athens, Paul preached in a different way from elsewhere. He spoke about God from a different point of view. But he said this, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. So you see, the note comes through loud and clear. If I want to change my life, if I want my life to be changed by God, if I want to leave my non-Christian life behind and become a Christian, I really must do some repenting. Of course, unfortunately, in our concern not to rattle people and upset them and make them feel bad, we sometimes start talking about the love of God and about Jesus, and we don't say a word about repentance. Well, the New Testament preachers were a bit different they issued the call to repent and that call to repent came along with a call to believe, it was combined with faith as for example in Acts chapter 20 Paul is is giving his testimony there And he says in the course of giving his testimony, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. So he's going on to step two. We're staying in step one for the moment. So this call to repent is combined with faith, and also with forgiveness. You remember the Lord Jesus, just before ascending into heaven, spoke with his disciples, and Luke's version of what he said at that point takes us to Luke 24, where Jesus said, This is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Because repentance is only a step towards something else, receiving forgiveness of sins and of course it's also a step that we shall see again and again to baptism because on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached a powerful, powerful sermon which the Holy Spirit used to convict people of their sin and make them aware of the Lord Jesus and how they needed to come to him and at the end they were so cut up, the Holy Spirit convicted them so much, that they cried out, what shall we do? We must do something, you have put us on the spot, what do we do? And Peter replied, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. So the call to repent is commanded by John, Jesus, and Paul. It's combined with faith, with forgiveness, and baptism and we could say it is compelled it's urged on by something else because in Romans chapter 2 Paul makes this interesting point he says there in Romans 2 4 do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness tolerance and patience not realizing that God's kindness is leading you towards repentance. He's saying to these people, don't you realize that the fact that you are disturbed, the fact that you are being called to repent is an indication of God's kindness, His patience with you, His tolerance of your bad behavior? Don't despise the kindness of God because that kindness is intended to melt your heart, to lead you to repentance. And also, over in Second Corinthians 7, Paul says this, he says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow. In other words, not being sorry for myself, but being sorry for my sins, the sins I've committed. Realizing how horrendous my sin has been. Realizing that it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And beginning to weep over our sinful behavior Up until that point in time. So much for the first door we're called to go through the door of repentance. The second door, as we've hinted already, is the door to believe. Now here is a point where I'm going to possibly upset some of you. Sorry about that. But I must be true to the scriptures as I understand the Word of God. Do you have any idea how often the Apostle John uses the word believe in his Gospel? Maybe f- 40 times? Maybe 50 times? Maybe 60 times? Mm-mm. In that one Gospel that John wrote, he uses the word believe no less than 98 times. So our interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ is very much defined By this word, believing. Now here we hit a snag. The translators of our Bible wanted the Bible to be as readable as possible. In the kind of English that we would easily absorb. But doing that meant not literally translating. Words as if they had been literally translated would have given a somewhat different meaning. And the classic example is the word in. In. Because, you see, we talk about believing in Jesus. Well, oh, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. But believing in can describe a static, lifeless situation. You see, a lot of people this evening in the UK and around the world... You ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Oh yes, oh yes. But you start probing a little bit and quizzing them a little bit and they discover that by believing in Jesus all they mean is they believe what the Bible says about Jesus and he stays out there and they stay over here. Oh, that won't save them, will it? Believing in Jesus at that level is no use whatever. The devils believe in Jesus. They believe who he is, they know who he is they're afraid of him. But that doesn't save them. So believing in Jesus is not adequate. So what is adequate? We see in many cases, not all of them, but in many cases, when we have this word believe in the New Testament, especially in John's Gospel, the Greek doesn't say believe in. It says believe into. 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 A different preposition altogether. You see, when we use the word into, we're immediately describing action. I parked the car across the road, I walked across the road, and I came into this hall. It's all about action, you see. Now I'm in this hall. I'm staying in the same place for however long. I'm just here. But into describes action. Something is happening. And at this point, we do run into a problem. Because, you see, Over the years, with the best intentions in the world, evangelical Christians have started using language that is not the language of the New Testament. Now God has, if you like, turned a blind eye to that and has honoured their faith and their sincerity and has allowed them to use that language which is not strictly true to Scripture. And the commonest example of this, and you'll all be familiar with it, is the use of Revelation 3, verse 20. It's addressed to a church, for a start. All these seven letters were addressed to the churches in Turkey. And to that church in Laodicea, the risen Lord sends this letter... In which he describes Jesus as standing outside the door, knocking at the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. And that has been used as an avenue of personal witness. It's been used as a gospel text by evangelists all over the world for a long, long time. And God has honoured it. But you see, it's not the correct picture. Why? Because the picture in Revelation 3.20 is of Jesus standing outside the door of a church. They weren't unsaved in that building. They weren't saved. They were pretty worldly Christians though. self complacent Christians. They needed shaking up. They needed further blessing. And Jesus' picture is standing outside the door of that church and saying, please let me in. You need me to sort things out. You Christians are not growing. You've gone all worldly minded. oh, so we thought that was Jesus standing at the door of our hearts no you see in fact instead of the idea of our accepting Jesus and bringing him to where we are the New Testament explains that in a different way we relate differently to each member of the Godhead we sang our opening hymn about the Holy Trinity three gods, three, three in one God three in one God we relate to God the Father initially but repenting towards him and he's up there and I'm down here and I'm reaching out my spirit to the throne of God and repenting towards him but over the years we have decided that the better explanation of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is to think of him coming to me where I am and making me aware of his presence making me aware of what he did for me in the cross making me aware of how much I need him and I invite him into my heart you know this is not theological hair splitting and I'll p- explain why in a minute because you see if the gospel says as it does say that we should be believing into Jesus. Where is Jesus? He's at the Father's right hand. He's not here. Well, he is here, but he's not physically here. In his resurrection body, he's there. And the gospel calls us to believe into him. So instead of him coming down into my little life, oh, yes, he's come, all right. But instead of that emphasis, the initial emphasis is on my getting permission to reach unto heaven. And believe into Jesus and say, as it were, I'm knocking at His door in heaven. I'm saying, Let me into you, Lord. Oh, believing into Jesus. And you see, the reason why I say it's not theological hair splitting is this. When we talk about receiving Jesus, accepting Him into our lives, and then try to explain what happens in relation to the Holy Spirit we end up using the same word twice receiving Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit and that clouds the issue because the New Testament talks about believing into Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit hmm we have developed two receivings in the Evangelical Church in the New Testament there's just one we are called to believe into Jesus upwards and receive the spirit downwards Hmm. believe well believe was commanded by Jesus, we saw that already believe the good news the classic text and a good one to repeat again and again is the story of the Philippian jailer when Paul and Cyrus were cruelly, wrongly arrested, imprisoned locked up and at night, midnight, they're not groaning and moaning and complaining, and they're singing praise to God and all of a sudden God comes down and breaks open that prison with a mighty earthquake and all of everything is chaos and the jailer panics and the jailer cries out, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Sarah reply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So, there's no question about it. We must connect with Jesus to be saved Hmm. yes we must believe into the Lord Jesus Christ and that belief is combined with baptism at the end of Mark's gospel We read that Jesus spoke to the disciples after he was raised from the dead, and Mark's report of that particular occasion says that Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Further to believe condemns us on the spot but when we do believe that belief ought to be as far as God's word says joined to, followed by the experience of baptism in water and there again the church in its widest sense of the church has lost its way very badly because way back down the line people stopped baptizing believers and started sprinkling infants and you see the reason why we have this word baptize at all in our New Testament. It's because when King James commissioned a new translation of the Bible, he was not in very good terms with the bishops. And the bishops preparing for this translation of the Bible said to those involved in the translation work, we don't want anything in this new translation of the Bible that will further upset King James. So what did they do? They didn't translate the word baptize. It's pure Greek. Pure Greek. Baptizo if they had translated the word baptize, then we couldn't talk about baptizing babies because we'd drown them. Because baptize means to immerse under the water. Yes. And that is the second uh, no, it's just coming up to the third step in a minute. We haven't quite got there yet. But it's combined with baptizing. Hmm. And of course it's combined with receiving eternal life this whole belief is the the key in a sense to connecting with Jesus and having eternal life God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son whoever believes into him said Jesus will not perish but have eternal life so believing is commanded it's combined with baptism and by the Holy Spirit, you remember we saw last week about Jesus in John chapter seven saying, "If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of the must being will flow streams, rivers of living water." And John explains by this he was talking about the Spirit who would be available to all after Jesus went back to heaven. So this whole idea that all connected, repenting, believing, having eternal life, and being filled with Holy Spirit. but you see, it comes back to this whole business of whether we settle for thinking primarily of Christ in me. And of course the Bible speaks about that. Paul speaks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Of course he's in our lives. He said to his disciples that he and his father would come and make, make their... He said, we'll come and make our home with you. The whole triune God comes into our life by the Holy Spirit. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Just take a moment to look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 30. Paul is writing to these Christians in Corinth and towards the end of that first chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30, he says this. He says it is because of him, he's referring to God, it's because of him that you, you Christians, are in Christ Jesus You didn't get there by your own smartness or cleverness or anything else. It was through the grace of God, the work of God, the mercy of God, that you now find yourselves in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You see, the emphasis is on our being in Christ. Yes, he's in us. It's a two-way thing. But it's where the major emphasis comes is always significant. Major emphasis is that we believe into him, and we are in him, but also, of course, that he is in us. Now, let's move on. We thought about repent, we thought about believe, and we've already touched on baptism. And of course, baptism, we know very well, has been commanded by our Lord Jesus, And no section of the church has any right to substitute infant sprinkling for what Jesus has commanded us to do. So we come, for example, to Matthew 28. I'm going to upset you again here. Where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them oh, oh, into the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit and just about every baptismal service I attend. That is misquoted. Interesting that in the Baptist Union Constitution it's correctly quoted. Because if Jesus didn't say baptize these people in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, if he said that, It would mean that I, if I'm baptizing somebody, have authority to do so. I'm acting in the name of the triune God. I'm baptizing you, brother. Well, that's true. That's very true. But it's not what Jesus said. He says, I'm wanting to be baptizing these people into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this whole idea, again, of being immersed into God. It's further confirming and reinforcing this concept that a Christian is somebody who is immersed in the living God really it's not just theological hair-splitting it's important to get these emphases right we've seen already that Peter on the day of Pentecost called people to repent and get baptized in the name of Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins and he promised they would receive the Holy Spirit but they had to get baptized And the Apostle Paul himself, when he encountered the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, if we go to Acts 22, we find there one of three places where we can read Paul's testimony in the book of Acts. And there in that particular version of Paul's testimony, he is reporting how Ananias, this Christian who lived nearby, was sent by God to minister to Saul of Tarsus, just newly saved, just newly encountered the risen Lord, just newly surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ananias comes and speaks to this dear brother. And in the context of speaking to him, he says here, in Acts 22, verse 16, What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Let me say, what's wrong with that? What puzzles many Christians about that is the fact that this man is being called to get immersed in water. And he's being told that that will do something towards washing away his sins. Hang on a minute. That's not true, surely. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me clean again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's true. We're not cleansed from sin by water. We're cleansed from sin by the precious blood of Jesus shed in the cross of Calvary. But anybody seeing a baptism... Any non-Christian coming along and saying, oh, what's going on here? Oh, they're dumping people in water. Mm, Water must be something to do with getting washed. Well, they're right. But the major emphasis of baptism is not getting washed. It's actually death and burial and resurrection. But what on earth is meant by this? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. Who had a list of your sins before you became a Christian who had a list of my sins before I became a Christian well God had Satan had and I had but you see the good news is that the minute God saved me from my sins he destroyed his list of my sins he says your sins and iniquities will I remember against you no more, it's finished so God doesn't have a list of my sins anymore hallelujah Oh, Satan has a list which is incomplete I have a list which is incomplete I have to learn to hammer Satan if he comes accusing me of some sins that I know God has forgiven me I have to tell Satan to go in no uncertain terms I have authority over him in Jesus name but what about my list of my sins mm. couldn't they give me some trouble now and again yes they could and this man, remember, had blood on his hands. He had, he had caused people to be murdered because they were Christians. He'd caused havoc in the Christian church. He's now being called to get baptized and wash away sins. You see, the whole idea is that baptism helps us, I believe, to get rid of our own list of our own sins. God's dealt with his list. The actual sins have been forgiven and blotted out and gone but if I still carry a little list that I bring out occasionally and think well, is it really possible that that was a very, very serious sin a very major event in my life could God possibly really, totally forgive me for that and anything that will help me to get rid of my list of my sins is of value now in Stirling Baptist Church where I was a member many months ago there was a woman from Plean where my wife was the health visitor who became a Christian. And she was a real matriarch in Preen. In fact, she was a real bully in Preen. People were scared of her. She was big and she was forceful and she ruled the roost. And then got hold, and Jesus got hold of her and she was very much changed. Jesus got hold of her and the night Mrs. Steele was baptized in Stirling Baptist Church in 1957 I was there and witnessed the event. And this big woman came up out of the water of baptism and raised her hands to heaven and roared in a loud voice, I'm clean! I'm clean! She was cleaned a while before that when she came to Jesus. But they came home to her. God used baptism to bring home to the fact that she was really clean and that was so glorious she couldn't keep quiet about it. So, baptism commanded by Jesus combined with faith uh, and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit I won't go into all the detail of that again we come now to the trickiest part of this study which has to do with receiving the Holy Spirit you see if you think for a minute what Paul said to the Christians in Rome Romans 15 verse 7 He said, accept one another, receive one another, just as Christ accepted you. The big deal is summarized in that little phrase. Christ accepted you. Christ accepted me. Oh, of course I accepted him, but that's secondary. Far more wonderful that he accepted me. The sovereign Lord, the Son of God, the King of Kings... He accepted me. That's marvellous, is it not? So, I am called to receive. I've already received the Lord Jesus Christ. I've submitted to him. But the word receive is used in scripture to describe our attitude to and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And you see, being baptised in the Spirit, interestingly, is described in the Bible Not in terms of nouns. People talk about the baptism and fullness of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament doesn't use these phrases. No, it doesn't. It uses verbal phrases. It talks about being baptized, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ah So well let's look at what Jesus said in Acts chapter one it's reported. Acts Jesus, Acts Jesus Acts 1, Jesus was meeting just a very short time before he ascended into heaven. He'd already been around for weeks interacting with his disciples, but now he's meeting with them again in Acts 1, he says this. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard about. For John immersed in water, but in a few days you will be immersed in Holy Spirit. Now, why am I saying Holy Spirit and not the Holy Spirit? Because that's what the Greek says here and in many other places. Why should it not be uniformly the same? Why should it not be always, in the Greek, when we have it in the English, the Holy Spirit? Now, I can't give you chapter and verse for this, but it has been suggested very wisely, very helpfully I believe, that where the word the T-H-E, is there in the Greek and comes in the English, it's focusing on the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. You see, a certain sect, which is still active in the world, believes the Holy Spirit is not a person, just an influence. Oh no, the Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all persons. So where the word thee is included, the focus is, the emphasis is, on the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. But where the word thee is omitted, that's not suggesting the Holy Spirit is not a person, because he is. But it's putting the focus in that context on his power. And that makes sense. Because Jesus said in that same context to these same disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Now this is very interesting because what in chapter 1 of Acts Jesus described as being immersed in Holy Spirit that experience same experience Jesus spoke about that experience is described from the get to Acts 2 in different language. It's described there as these believers being filled with the Holy Spirit, or rather the, not the, the the word the is omitted. All of them were filled with Holy Spirit suddenly in the day of Pentecost they were all together suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven filled the whole house where they were sitting they saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest in each of them all of them were filled with Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them so the very first outpouring of the Spirit in the day of Pentecost was accompanied by the exercise and use of the gift of tongues or more accurately languages and this is one reason why some Christians just get switched off at this point so I can talk to God in English thank you very much I don't really need this gift of tongues and I don't really want it either hmm. if God wants me to have something I kind of want it It must have some value. What value? Well, perhaps next Sunday evening we'll come to think about that. But for the moment, just note that when these people were baptised and filled with the Holy Spirit, they immediately began to speak in other languages and they were declaring the wonders of God as we're told later in that chapter. I think perhaps at this point it would be good just to turn over to Acts chapter 10 and see then what happened at the Gentile Pentecost because these people on the day of Pentecost were all Jews all Jewish Christians the first group of Christians in the church were all Jewish then we come to Acts 10 but this time we've got Peter preaching in a house meeting the home of a Roman soldier it's one of those marvellous occasions, it hasn't happened to me yet, but just keep praying for it, that <laughs> the Holy Spirit interrupted Peter and he had to stop preaching. Whoa-ho! The Holy Spirit, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that means the Jewish Christians, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles we didn't think they would get this we thought this was just for Jews but even on the Gentiles how did they know the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them because they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God speaking in tongues resulting in and expressing rather praising God what happened then Peter said can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have so he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ you see this was an exceptional situation an exceptional situation in that these people seems perfectly clear were born again baptized in the Spirit all at once now you may have talked with Catholic people as I have talked with Catholic people who say, you know what? I've been baptized in the Spirit. And you talk to them and you hear them praying. <coughs> you say, hey, these guys know the Lord. These guys know Jesus. <coughs> that was an ailment to me when I first experienced it. These guys know Jesus. But they're not talking about being born again because they were taught they were born again when they had sprinkled water on them as babies saying i been baptised in the Holy Spirit but I firmly believe that many of these dear folks are born again baptised in the Spirit all in the water oh. but notice Peter issues a command not a bit of advice not an invitation, a command these people need to be baptised and you know for some Christians for some new believers being baptised immersed in water is the first time they ever really express true submission to Jesus because in their natural desire I don't want to do it, I don't want to be in some public place dunked under water I don't want that I don't want to get baptized in water (coughs) well brother, well sister here is your chance to prove you're prepared to submit to Jesus you don't want it, but he does and you're going to do what he wants, yes (laughs) that's <laughs> a wonderful demonstration of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ so we've got these people so far Jews and the Gentiles just turn quickly over to Acts chapter 19 where Paul encounters some people in Ephesus who uh, well he met these people for the first time and he put a question to them he found some people who were calling themselves disciples. And he thought they were disciples of Jesus. He was wrong. He asked them, Did you receive Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, What baptism did they receive? Ah, they said John's baptism. So these had been, these were people who had been discipled by John the Baptist. A while ago and Paul said well John's baptism was a baptism of repentance so he told the people they now had to believe into the one coming after John that is Jesus which they did and on hearing this they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul placed his hands on them the Holy Spirit came on them no hands placed on the Jewish people at Pentecost no hands placed on the Gentile people in the home of Cornelius but now Paul is placing his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and this time they prophesied what are we learning? we're learning surely that when the Holy Spirit gets this much of a hold of your life he begins to change what to do with your mouth most people when they're baptised in the Spirit either pray in tongues or prophesy as these folks did Sometimes people have a long, long wait. My dear wife, who was baptized a year before me in the Spirit, waited for years and got so frustrated till eventually the Lord released her in the gift of tongues. Maybe you're wondering why does Sandy show so much interest in tongues? What, what value does he find in tongues? Well, do you ever find it difficult to pray? Do you ever feel in the morning I don't feel like praying today? No. Most normal Christians feel that way now and again, sorry but they do. I can't be bothered praying, I've got all this stuff to do, I don't really want a prayer time today. But you know what? If you've got the gift of tongues, the minute you start praying in tongues, oh, I do want to pray, and you're off into English and you pray for half an hour. Mm. My prayer time in the morning always begins. Praying in tongues, not for a long time, but for a short time. Praying in tongues. It is the one only, really, it's really the only one of the gifts of the Spirit that's designed to bless the person who receives it. Other than all, to bless other people. Now, go to Acts 8. Because Acts 8 is a kind of exception to what we've been learning so far. Acts 8 is a time when there was blessing in Samaria, persecution scattered the early church. They required persecution to get them out, spreading out from Jerusalem. And they got persecution. And those who were scattered went all over the place, and Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And amazing things happened. Shriek with shrieks, evil spirits came out of people, many people were crippled, paralytics, were healed. There was great joy in that city. And those who had believed Philip's preaching, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. They were baptized, both men and women. But one got to Jerusalem that something was happening in Samaria. And the other apostles seemed to have said to Peter and John, "Uh, I think you guys better go down to Samaria and see what really is going on down there. So, when Peter and John arrived in Samaria, they met these new Christians. And they could see and hear in conversation with them, that they had met the Lord they were excited about Jesus but these apostles sensed there was something missing in their experience ah they hadn't yet been immersed in Holy Spirit power so John and Peter prayed for them prayed for them laid hands on them the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them They'd simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John placed their hands on them. And they received Holy Spirit power. Literally, they were receiving, one by one, Holy Spirit power. We're not told. They prayed in tongues. We're not told. They prophesied. But there was a guy there who had professed faith. though he was a bit of a fake, seems. Managed to get baptized, though he was a bit of a fake. Simon, this magician. And he saw the change in these people, after they were immersed in Holy Spirit power. And he said to Peter, hey, I'll pay you for the rights to do this stuff. How much do you want? Pay, give me the rights to do... I can, I'd let to do this too. And Peter told them where to get off. He was a fake. But the fact is, he saw something that was not there before. they had had the hands laid on them and they were immersed in Holy Spirit power. Do you remember... Jesus said on one occasion, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things, good gifts to you? He said that on one occasion. On a different occasion, he said something similar but different. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, I've known, well I myself did it, I asked many times to be baptized in the Spirit before it happened to me. But you see, interestingly, that word that Jesus spoke about asking for the Holy Spirit, the asking verb is in the present tense, a different tense could have been used in Greek to describe a one-off asking. It wasn't that tense. It was the present tense. So it means how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who keep on asking? Oh, that takes the pressure off but of bit, doesn't it? So never think if it doesn't happen first time round it's not going to happen at all. No. Jesus suggests the opposite. It may very well not happen the first time round. But if you really want it The secret is to keep asking. Show just how desperate you are to know as much as God can give you of his Holy Spirit. Let me just sum up the end here. It's useful to have explained what really this is all about. And it's best to explain it in terms of ability. The more the Holy Spirit controls our lives, the more we are able to do. Does that not make sense? I think it does. You see, without being actually immersed in the Holy Spirit, with, a, with only a, a kind of, well, well, preliminary, if you like, experience of the Spirit, we can get on at a certain level. Of course we can. We can pray, we can worship, we can do witness and do things like that. But you see, the point is, there's an emphasis in scripture on our needing, the enabling of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do certain things we could not do so well otherwise. One great example of this, and I keep quoting as I go around preaching different places, is in Philippians chapter 3 verse 3, where Paul writes to these Christians in Philippi and says this, It is we who are the circumcision. You know, the circumcision was a very big issue in the early church because the Jews thought that those Gentiles who became Christians ought to experience circumcision. That was not God's will. But uh, it was their idea. And the circumcision party were really a bit of a pest to Paul and the other preachers. And Paul says it is we, himself and his colleagues, who are the true circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. And by the flesh, remember, it's not the stuff in my arms and my legs. The flesh means my own human nature. New Testament word flesh means my own human nature. What I can produce without God's help, that's my flesh. But Paul says when it comes to worship, we put no confidence in the flesh. Oh, why is some worship so different from others? Because some worship doesn't really ask for or expect or experience the help of the Holy Spirit. Not, not like that here. We do experience the help of the Holy Spirit here. As we worship together. But you see, if you simply get some gifted musicians and get some words up in the screen, songs or hymns or whatever, and say okay we're going to worship now and we all start singing that could fall far short of real worship so real worship is tied up as Paul says here with glorying in Christ Jesus we come to worship and our focus is immediately away from our own environment our own locality, our own immediate surroundings and immediately our focus is in heaven We glory in Christ Jesus, there he is the glorified Lord of the Father's side. We want to engage with Him as we worship. We want to give Him a good time. We want to give Him pleasure as we worship. That's it. And to do that, we need to worship by the Spirit of God. Jesus said, "The Holy Spirit will glorify Me." We need help to glorify Jesus. I can't glorify Jesus on my own. Oh no, but if we're open to the Spirit of God and moving in the power of the Spirit of God, then we can and we will and we should glorify Jesus and realise that, hey, this is so much better, so different than standing up singing a few hymns. Yes. To worship God the way we should, the way he desires and deserves, we need the Holy Spirit's help. The same is true of prayer. At the end of Ephesians 6, you remember there is that wonderful passage on the armour of God and as Paul teaches us how to become equipped with these various pieces of armour which represent different things he said eventually take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit the bible is called the sword of the spirit if you try to bear witness to Jesus or preach about Jesus without having a bible without using the bible you might succeed up to a point by depriving the Holy Spirit of his sword because once we have the Bible open, once we're speaking the Bible words, Billy Graham kept preaching and saying the Bible says the Bible says, the Bible says he kept quoting scripture and giving the Holy Spirit the sword to use to convict folk of their sins and point them to Jesus and so Paul says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and then he adds this and pray in the spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, pray in the Spirit. Some would say that refers, almost exclusively, to praying in tongues. I don't think so. It includes praying in tongues, but I believe it means praying in our own language, but helped, prompted, guided by the Spirit, depending on the Spirit's help. I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but I have a real problem when pastors stand up and read prayers. I want to do that at Findles and I want to remember all the names of people I'm praying for. When the Holy Spirit is controlling our lives and our thoughts and inspiring us, prayer should pour out from us. Pray in the Spirit in all occasions. There's variety in prayer, with all kinds of prayers and requests. Oh, yes. So, we need to be enabled to worship God acceptably. We need to be enabled to pray effectively. And one more scripture, will just send that message home. Romans chapter 8, because there Paul is speaking about prayer and he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what or how we ought to pray. We confess our ignorance. When it comes to prayer. How to do it, what to include, we do not know these things naturally, properly, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. He helps us in our weakness and he doesn't just help us in our weakness, he actually intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. Probably a rare event, rare experience to have the Holy Spirit praying in and through us and we're not speaking a single word we're groaning we're groaning the Holy Spirit is leading us to groan agonise in prayer so we need to be enabled to worship, to pray and yes finally some of the whole thing which I never tire of quoting but I think it's one of the main keys to the kind of Christian living God wants to give us where in Galatians 5 Paul says, live by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature There follows an explanation for the reason for this, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other so you don't do what you want you see if we allow our sinful nature to take over we immediately find ourselves in a situation of conflict. Because we know very well that our sinful nature is saying, Go on, go on, just just do it. It's not a big sin. Just do it, just do it, just do it. And the Holy Spirit is saying, No. There are consequences. Don't do it. We're in conflict. But if we're living throughout our daily life, living by the Spirit, how do you live by the Spirit? How do you live with your wife? How do you live with your husband? You spend time together. You talk to each other. How do you live with the Spirit? Spend time together. You talk to each other. Talk to the Spirit. Holy Spirit, help me. Have discussions with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you help me to sort this out? The Holy Spirit loves when we involve him because he's able to help us live lives that are fulfilled and satisfying and effective and above all, pleasing to our wonderful God and Father. It may be that some of you this evening are saying, well, I would like to know the Holy Spirit more than I do and experience. Uh, If that's you, maybe after we've sung a few songs, Graham, there'll be an opportunity for prayer one-to-one. I'll be available to pray if you would like. But remember, I'm not encouraging you to come in unbelief from it. But don't be disappointed if you don't get as much as you would like this evening. Maybe next Sunday evening. Wait and see. Anyway, let's pray now. Father, we thank you that you have not only saved us from our sins and given us this wonderful relationship that we have with you as children to a wonderful, loving, caring Father as related to A wonderful living Lord Jesus who declares that we are precious and of infinite value to him you've given us also your Holy Spirit to enable us to go way beyond what we could ever achieve what we could ever do not only in the spiritual department of our life but in the ordinary everyday things as well We thank you that you just long to enable us to live a life that is possible for us and is pleasing to you. So increase our faith fire, increase our spiritual hunger, enable us to desire, desire deeply to know, to experience as much of your Holy Spirit as we possibly can. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.